I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, episode two. Hope you enjoyed episode one. We're getting further into this election campaign now. My name's Mark Kenny, and the host of this particular podcast series, which comes to you as an initiative of Policy Forum and ANU. We're really keen to get your feedback, of course. Uh, so if you want to contact us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And email, contact us by podcast at policyforum.net. Now, we have a fantastic cast of uh, ANU experts here to talk about the election campaign. Uh, going around the, the very small studio we have here, I have Professor Paul Pickering, a historian also from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU, Dr John Hewson, who of course is a former opposition leader as well as these days being connected to the uh, Crawford School here at ANU, and from the School of Politics and International Relations, we have a couple of eminent scholars, Dr. Katrine Beauregard and Dr. Jill Shepard. Welcome all. Now, let's get down to some business here. We're, we're into week two of this, um, this election campaign. As I said, it does have a rather strange feel about it. I think this is partly a function of the fact that we've just come off Easter and we're just about to go into Anzac Day. So the election campaign feels like it's uh, fallen into a bit of a hole in a way. Um, and certainly the plans of the two sides seem to have fallen in holes as well because I think the Labor Party was hoping to make week two all about wages. Uh, I understand the opposition was talking about uh, focusing on small business or some such, uh, one of its key sort of policy bases. Uh, but really, uh, week two started off talking about water, talking about water rights and Barnaby Joyce and his role as water minister back in 2017. Might just start with you, John Hewson. Is this typical of election campaigns? I mean, you've been through them. They're a dynamic living thing. You, you only have a certain amount of control over them. Uh, what, what's this one shaping up like for you? Well, I sort of go to bed each night thinking it can't get any worse. And each morning when I wake up, I find it is. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually just uh, been a very unedifying process for the first uh, 10 days or so. I mean, they haven't been able to easily focus on their key messages and slogans. Um, but I think from the point of view of the electorate, it's a bit of a dull roar. It's noise in the background. I don't think anyone's learning very much about the candidates or their policies or the alternative uh, governments and their policies. So I think at this stage, they're, they're battling to get uh, electorate engagement. Uh, I think a lot of people have made up their mind quite some time ago how they're going to vote. And um, the messages don't resonate. For example, the government's message on the economy and how well we're doing um, doesn't resonate with households across the country that are struggling to meet the cost of living um, and uh, have seen all the key elements of that being ignored, whether it's housing yes, that, affordability that, or 
power prices or whatever. That uh, that issue of the strong economy, we discussed that a bit last week. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that it's potentially a positive and a negative for the government to the extent that it can talk about a positive economy with you know a lot of reasonably good numbers around it. It's, uh, you would imagine on the surface that's a, a positive for the government. But Labor's whole pitch is that the strong economy is not working for you and that there are many people who are feeling that. Is there an ex- is there, a, is there a sense in which every time the government mentions the strong economy, it reinforces the feeling of grievance among a large section of uh, voters uh, that you know they're not part of it? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it resonates with the lived experience of most voters. And I think that's their biggest problem. Uh, and of course, uh, there are very significant risks about the future of the economy. Uh, you know, with global growth slowing as much as it has and with a constant threat of a, perhaps another GFC, at least certainly a, a series of financial shakeups and so on, which, uh, you know, as when you're struggling to meet the cost of living day in, day out, uh, you know, in a world where flat, wages are flat, your debt's at record levels, house prices are falling, I mean, uh, to hear how well we're doing, uh, I just think they discount that. And after nearly 30 years without a recession, I think the elected largely takes economic management for granted. I mean, we've had both sides in politics over that period, in government, I should say, over that period. We've been through a series of crises, the Asian crisis, the tech crisis, the GFC. We've survived them all. Uh, I think they just discount the significance of the economy and look for particular issues that are impacting on them. Jill Shepard, sorry, sorry, I was going to intervene. Sorry, Jill, if I was going to steal your point, but (laughs) I think from an election, for a voter's perspective, right, it's not just about your own pocket, it's about also other people. So if you're still doing well from the economy, but you also think that your children are not doing well, or you think that your neighbors are not doing well, that actually matters quite a bit into how you're going to decide to vote. So if you have your house, Right, it's, you're all good, but you don't think your children will be able to have the same lifestyle as you do. That will impact your choice, even though if yourself you're doing very well. There's also an increasing sense in Australia that, and John touched on this, is that the government doesn't have that big a role anymore. If we're going to expose ourselves to global forces, then the government can't at the same time sweep in. I mean, it was only 2004 that the that that um, the coalition campaigned on who you trust on interest rates. I mean, it's an incredible furphy, right? Now there's – and we see this in surveys. The election study shows us that the majority of voters don't think the government has any effect on the economy, bad or good. And that's that's Mm. really damaging for the coalition. Where do they go if it's not for – um, economic management at the moment. Paul, you've been out of the country for a while uh, on, uh, on on assignment elsewhere, but then you've come back in and, and you're watching this election campaign. What's it look like to you now coming back into Australia after a couple of months being away? Well, it, um, it, it reminds me a bit of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in a way, mm-hmm. and not just in relation to the leaders, in the sense of, you know, I've got this sense of deja vu. You have, a, you have a, an election budget that's a sweetener, and you think, well, if they were such good ideas, why haven't you been doing them uh, before now? Mm. Um, and then you have a debate about government advertising, and then you have uh, leaders tramping around the country um, doing sort of vague forms of eating local produce and um, <laughs> uh, pork barrelling, and then it's a case of who's going to make uh, the worst gaffes. From week to week, and so at that at one remove, it looks rather familiar. Do you think there's? I mean, and I think John Houston touched on this a bit with his opening comments. But do you think there's a sense that voters aren't engaged in this, and that perhaps this election will come and go, and we'll we'll, we'll be roughly where we were before it started? Uh, you know, is the campaign going to have any impact at all? 
Uh, well, the the fact that Easter and Anzac Day of come into it, as you mentioned, is only going to aid that sort of status quo ante uh, possibility. I mean, how many people are rusted on or how many people are mm. going to change, which will, uh, in a sense, even it out is, I mean, I think that's uh, uh, a considerable possibility. Campaigns only matter to the extent that there's negative risk, that you can absolutely cock up. Um, and that this is why they this is this is why we have such mundane, repetitive campaigns, right? Because everyone is sort of just uh, centralising or converging on risk management. Um, so, so to the extent that we have gaffes, even they're pretty benign. And especially since we, if we might go towards a change of government, right? The research do show that it's been like people have made up their mind, right? And that's usually happen when you see a change of government. People have made up their mind very early on before the campaign, and then the campaign doesn't really, unless there's a major gaffe, like Jill was saying. That, that, then that, that's, gonna... that's that's true. But we do also know of situations where governments. Uh, John Howard did this a couple of times, where governments have gone into elections at 49, 51 down, maybe even 48, 52 down and managed to rescue the situation in the campaign. So there is the potential here, I would have thought, and, and going to Jill Shepard's point about negatives and risk, I mean, the government's obviously running a very um, uh, you know, strong campaign about the risk of electing a Labor government, the risk of higher taxes, of higher spending, of the budget being blown, you know, of all the sort of tropes that are associated yeah. with, with Labor governments. So uh, th this campaign has the potential perhaps to only go one way. That is, it, it either works for the government or it doesn't. Labor's really already started out in front and, and it will either defend that position right through the election or it will uh, be run down. I think if you look at the hard numbers of seats, I mean, the government's got 73 and notionally with the redistributions, the AOP's got 72. The government has to win, you know, three or four net yeah. to, uh, to return to government. Now, I can't see three or four net seats around the country that they're going to win. Now, certainly, there's a lot of seats you can put on the list that they might lose. And of course, the polling would suggest that's somewhere between 10 and 15 seats net. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big deficit uh, from which to begin the campaign. And, uh, you know, I know Morrison's been targeting a couple of seats that people perhaps didn't expect to target, particularly North Tasmania, for example. But, um, you know, it's hard to see that there's a mood to give them another go. I mean, and the point that was made before, I mean, a lot of the ideas that were put in that budget were left, left people wondering why he hadn't been doing this for some time because these are issues that sort of made a bit of sense. And I haven't seen in my, my history in politics, I haven't seen a, a good news budget actually sustain an electoral edge. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, I think it's just generally pretty flat. Uh, you might get a slight lift in a poll that's, you know, marginal within the standard error sort of thing, but not much improvement. So it's still all to be done from that point of view, from the government's point of view. And uh, when you look at the distribution of seats where the issues that they're running, where they might get hurt on, like climate, for example, which will really resonate in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And, um, you know, well, they're doing sort of ridiculous things to try and shore up support for the LNP in Queensland, for example. Yeah. I'm not sure that'll work either, given the distribution of independents and minor parties now and the, the mess that will be, you know, the preference allocations as a result of that. So I, I just think that the government's really, you know, looking quite desperate and sta sounding quite shrill. Um, and, um, 
if that is sustained for the next few weeks, people will say, well, I was right. I made up my mind. I'm just going to yeah. stay where I was. <laughs> and uh, that'll be it. Jill, what do you think uh, we, we, we can discern from the two sides here in terms of the different packages they're putting forward. We, we're having an election that's been widely commented on now. We're having an election where voters are actually being given a, a pretty significant mm. choice, really, in philosophy. Uh, what do you make of all that? No, I think it's it's fascinating that we are being given a choice, and that's coming mostly from Labor, which I think is really interesting. Labor for the past few elections have really crept ahead of the Libs in terms of their um, operational standards, you know, the the kind of back office that they run. Um, they're getting very, very good at this. What they've done this time, which I think is really interesting, is they're basically writing off older voters. They're saying, you know, you're not going to vote for us. They're just segmenting them. Um, and, and they're going after this really disillusioned kind of 30 to 45-year-old target. Um, that's really interesting. Everyone has been so risk-averse for so long that I think this is not a comparatively risky strategy, but it feels really bold, right? You know, franking dividends, like negative gearing. Um, if we're in any other country, they'd be laughing at us, you know, that this is kind of the sexy basis of this election. Yeah, maybe sexy, but I would say it's probably plays into this international movement that started with Obama, Emmanuel Macron in France, Justin Trudeau in Canada. It's like, we're going to be different, right? We're going to have policy. Not too different. Cha- not too different, <laughs> but we're going to have this idea that we're mm. making policy proposal different. Is it the final fracture yeah. of the neoliberal consensus? Yeah. Is that what we've and, seen But I think here? that's interesting in Australia is it's coming from a, a, lib- a Labour Party, right? In France, it came from the outside, right? Donald Trump, in a way, it's a kind of a different party system from the outside. But here's coming from a political party. It's probably in terms of that to try to prevent the Green or another party from like catching up right? in this kind of wave of this desire from the population of something needs to be different, right? So, the, yeah, I think the push Paul, on Paul the... Pickering, sorry. Oh, sorry I was Paul. just going to say, though, I wonder how much we... So if you look back as far as Menzies, there's been the trope that the Liberals are better on the economy and on defence and Labor are better on health and education. And that's, uh, I guess that's been embedded in polling for, for a long period of time. And I wonder how much that is still underlying the choices that people of will course, make. Of course, absolutely. And, and we know this when when we're thinking, when we're cued to think about health and education, we're more sympathetic towards labour. When we're cued to think about small business and economic growth, we're, we're more sympathetic towards la- uh, the Liberals. Now, whether that actually shifts vote choice, I don't know. And there's a chicken and egg thing here too, right? Do I care more about economic management because I've been born into a liberal family? Probably. You know, we didn't we didn't sit around talking about health and health and education, um, so it perpetuates. You know, it, it's a it's a recreate a reproducing sort of cycle, which underpins our major party system. It's really interesting from a historical perspective. If 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 what we're seeing, if that division is clear, and if this uh, turns out to be an election that the government does sneak home in. I'm not saying that I can see that either. I, I tend to agree with John Houston's point that when you look around the states, you go around the seats, it's pretty hard to see them picking up that net three or four seats they need, you know, holding on to everything they've got effectively and picking up new ones. It, it, it is pretty hard to see. But let's assume for a moment that that is the case. And you can tell what question's coming, John Hewson. I mean, you were uh, in 1993 said to have written the longest suicide note in Australian political history with Fightback. Um Will this be a similar sort of watershed moment where orthodox 
politicians and 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 advisors decide labor like if labor goes down here will they be saying we were too bold we went too far we frightened too many voters and will we just see a a horrible retreat back to the sort of consensus i think if you take some of, <coughs> excuse me jill's survey work on attitudes to government spending and government tax for example um, we are in a transition, I think, back towards a bigger government, mm. government taking more responsibility for some of these things. There's a big sense of you know, prioritisations failed, government spending hasn't been well directed, um, we haven't funded it properly. And the one thing that surprises me against that background, and I think that's a significant trend in the, in the electorate, is that the Labor Party hasn't just accepted the Liberal argument and said, yes, we are taxing more because we intend to spend more on education health. They don't make the direct link. They let the Liberals run that argument and Liberals are still running on small government and, yep. you know, little regulation, even though their policies have drifted a fair way to the left in that <laughs> yep. respect. Um, you know, they, they're still trying to create the image of a difference. I think the Labor Party, if they want to really be bold, is to say, look, government has not been able to do what they're supposed to have done. And look, if you look at the government's uh, budget forecasts, uh, okay, they show that in the last six years, the government has been pretty good at constra constraining expenditure. But to continue through the budget period with about half the growth again of expenditure, you know, really serious restraint on expenditure compared to a Labor Party that says, look, you know, we are, we are actually prepared to spend because the health system has been in decline, the education system is fragmented and, and barely managed, whatever. And in those circumstances, I mean, they've got a very strong case to try and elevate the difference and they're only going part way. You know, Absolutely. Which, which surprises yeah, me, We talk about the boldness, right, <laughs> but it's still pretty timid. It's timid. I wonder though, and this is to undermine my own arguments, I wonder how much of this is uh, revealed versus state of preference. I wonder if if there's a, a sense in the electorate that good, uh, the big government is okay, and so we're saying this in surveys, um, I thought the budget would have been much more scathingly received because of the tax cuts. Because if what we're saying in surveys is right, then people don't want tax cuts. On the other hand, believe them anyway. I mean, you, you give me a dollar. Give me a dollar. Maybe that cuts both ways. I'll take if, it. But if, you know, if you don't believe them, then you're not worried about them. You've got to wait five years and two elections to get the rest of them. I mean, really? and we never do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, no, and this is a, a point that um, that both Paul and John were making earlier about budgets. Budgets have to feed into a narrative. The budgets, you know, Costello was getting big budget bounces, you know, not really, but um, well, they had during, a lot of money, that's for sure. Well, during the, the late nineties and early two thousands, in particular, because well, there was a lot of money, but it fed into this narrative that voters were buying, for you know, rightly or wrongly, that the government was kicking economic goals. That a, it was the government's doing, and that b, it was trickling down to them. Um, and you just can't you, you can't fly with that kind of story anymore. I don't know well, if it's that people have I'm changed. Not, I'm or not the so sure that that's. Changed. I'm not so sure that I'm completely convinced by that. I think there. Is, I think the liberals are writing their policy to that narrative template to some extent. I mean, oh, they what, are. What, what what they're saying is is that the last Labor government came in with a with a whopping surplus, zero net debt, mm. and within two terms, effectively had turned it into. You know, big, big you know, a very serious debt number and a very serious uh, deficit, and this is, um, you know, typical of Labor parties. And what yep. what the, what the, what the government has done since it's taken five five and a half matter. years to do it, but it's balanced the budget. And, and I think it, to Jill's point, right? I think maybe people don't. There's been a pendulum swing back in the fact that for a very long time, right, it was expected that you would cut tax, balance budget, 
and do all these economic things that even left-wing political parties cannot really fight against it. But I think what we've seen is this fight back, like, no, it's okay to have deficit. It's okay to spend because we want to have Medicare, because we want to have good school, we want to have park. And all these things cost money. I think there's a bit of the public... Oh, to answer your question earlier, I think there's a bit of... I think the public has changed a little bit because we've gone through GFC, crisis, not even that affect Australia, but there's been a change of that there's not that much money kicking around, as you said. And I think that makes people, people have changed and it's like, fine, let's have a deficit, which I would like 20 years ago would have been like, no, you cannot do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. Are, are we seeing a new version, Paul Pickering, of, of kind of class politics here as well? Flat wages, uh, the, you know, wages growth are being uh, so poor for so long and, and appearing to be structurally stalled. Uh, it's obviously a serious grievance of voters. That's what Labor is speaking to. The the two philosophies that are being offered here are, are effectively, as we've just discussed, you know, the, the government's version, which is we're going to build a strong economy. It's going to be more competitive. As a result of profits being higher, wages will and, and employment being higher, wages will eventually lift. And we're seeing, the, you know, the first green shoots of that. That's the government's argument. The feeling amongst voters and many voters and the you know, that feeling to which Labor is addressing its policies is that nothing is happening. Prices are going up, but their wages are stalled. Do you think that that's the contest here? That's the core of the contest? Well, certainly in the, I guess in recent memory, the the uh, the most successful way of addressing that was the accord in the first instance, because the the, the whole idea that you would trade off wage growth for the social wage was one that the electorate found very convincing, in certainly in 83. And I can't see a very clear articulation of something that's as, as, um, as coherent as the idea of a social wage in this, in this election. I'm, I'm not saying that I don't think Labor are being bold in some of the things that they're saying, but can you sum it up in a word? Or a, or a pithy phrase. I don't think you can yet. Yeah, it's an interesting point. But uh, I guess Labor would say, going back to what we've been discussing here, Labor would say, we are actually proposing a bigger government version of Australia. We are proposing that we spend more money on health, more money on education, more money on training, more money on the unemployed potentially, uh, and that uh, there'll be dividends that uh, that flow from that. So yes, you will pay more tax, but you will get better services. There'll be a better social safety net. That That's the contract. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tracked. It's just as you say, it's not really there in the, the, that, that, that pithy word, the accord. Yeah. But they never well, say it in so few words either, as you just did. I think you summed it up really nicely there, but they won't say it, will they, Paul? No, and I mean, the, <laughs> in the heat of the election campaign, politicians are going around the country and they don't want to say no to anything. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's not a good word for an election campaign. So so in a sense, I, and I, I mean, I defer to John's experience on this, but I think 
government's commitments tend to expand over the course of a campaign rather than retract. And so, again, this puts more and more pressure on what the underlying financial structure uh, that's going to fund, where are you going to fund this new promise that you've made and et cetera, et cetera. What what if um, a surplus is not seen as a measure of economic management success? What if it's seen as money that you should have spent on education, health, schools, childcare, whatever? And I think there's a large element of that now coming into it. Well, neither side don't do that. They ignore the debt side and and the the financing cost side. They just say, you know, if you're going to continually pursue surpluses at the expense of good education, good health, whatever – um, you know, I think it's part of the mood mood change that's taken place. I mean, people have heard these surplus arguments for so long. We've gone from a budget emergency to, you know, to a promise of surpluses now. And you know, even though that was a fairly innovative set of accounting principles to get that number, <laughs> um, you know, people are not impressed by it. And and the Labor Party simply says, look, we are in the position to have bigger surpluses. And to pay so down both sides faster. are arguing. Both sides yeah. are arguing that they'll have surpluses, yeah, and in so fact, so Labor's arguing sort of it'll new, have bigger that surplus. argument, and uh, it'll go back to the you know what you're really doing in government. I think the other thing that happens in election campaigns, and it's much more pronounced now, is every day they're spending some money on something. Well, that's yeah. 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 And people are saying, point. how the hell are they doing that? Yeah. You know, I mean, um, and why is it being given to that particular group in that particular oh, circumstance on that particular wacker. day? What about the rest of us? That's that beautiful budget line, decisions yeah. taken but not yet announced. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And, and, you know, and they're, they're quite suspicious of that. And I guess if you take a medium to longer term view, the commitments that both sides have made through the 2020s on the big items, on infrastructure, on defence, procurement, hundreds of billions of dollars, as well as continuing education, health improvement and the NDIS, which is blowing out, even though the numbers are down right now, it is blowing out. They're big numbers. So actually, you can talk lower taxes today. In the 2020s, whoever's in power is going to have to be putting taxes up. The over or the average tax burden will have to go up. And I think people are suspicious about all that too. I mean, they see the boasting of a defence procurement contract and we've got, what, we've got frigates, we've got fighter jets, we've got submarines all at once, you know, spread out over the next 10 or 15 years. They are huge numbers and we know defence spending is never very well monitored, let's say. I mean, mm. it, it blows out by tens of billions of dollars each time. So there's a, th- these are mixed signals coming into people who are trying to make a judgment about whether you know we ought to change government or not. When they see six years and you haven't done all these things and, you know, and you're suddenly doing them, uh, we might as well give the other side a run. And, you're um, listening. That, that's, that's a, a bit, bit of an issue, I think. Right yeah, now. yeah, it's a very good point. You're listening to Democracy Sausage coming to you from ANU. I'm Mark Kenny, host of this particular podcast series, uh, and I'm joined by a, uh, an eminent cast of experts from ANU, Paul Pickering, John Hewson, Katrine Beauregard and Jill Shepard. Um, Katrine Beauregard, can I ask you about the way the two leaders are performing? Uh, there's been a fair bit of commentary that uh, Scott Morrison has looked of the two of them more relaxed. What do you put that down to? Is that just that he's got nothing to lose? He's coming from behind? <laughs> Jill's making a face. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty harsh, Mark. <laughs> Well, the polls I mean, suggest no, that he, he's, he's trying to cast himself uh, as the underdog, and I think that would be right. I have nothing else to lose, right? And as such, I will just try to go for it and being relaxed and hope that I can relate more with the people. It's the whole adage of like, who, which leader would you rather have a beer with, right? And he's probably trying to say like, you'd rather have a beer with me than with Bill Shorten, right? That's why we see him as the Cronulla Shark uh, mm. game on the weekend, right? And it's 
probably trying to be a bit more related because he came into power in such a controversial way, to say the least, that he wants to make people to forget about it, right? And he's trying to to take up a new image. I think that's kind of... I think the problem is they both have got net dissatisfaction ratings. Mm. And so the electorate neither wants neither, and they don't like the alternative either. <laughs> so, yeah, but they're not Robertson Crusoe So you're in a position where it's very moment, difficult right? to say how much those personalities really are going to matter. I mean, Morrison is really still very much an advertising guy. You know, yeah, a pocket full of slogans. Right. You ask him a question, he gives you a slogan and hopes like hell you don't ask a second question for the detail because there isn't any. He mostly has just made that 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 statement off the cuff. Uh, yeah, but and he's, he's getting away with some of that. His political instincts are significantly sharper. That is, his sort of campaigning, street fighting political instincts seem to be sharper than his predecessors, particularly Malcolm Turnbull. Mm. Uh, and to that extent, he does seem to be dictating this campaign a bit from behind. Now, maybe that just the prog- that's just the prerogative that attaches to a government. But um, I don't know, know whether it resonates. That's the difficulty we have because we have to try and make a judgment. Is, is that resonating? I mean, Shorten comes across as very stiff, doesn't he? And very, he's coming across very as controlled a, and very constrained. Like he knows that if he makes yeah, a mistake, he could surrender some of his mistake, yeah. you know. But personality-wise, in terms of vote choice, right, and it doesn't really matter all that much, right? Is yeah. It, right? We, we obsess over it. But. <laughs> well, what, what about the question of religion in Australia and, and the way that was depicted? Uh, recently, uh, we saw Scott Morrison go to his Pentecostal church. Uh, the cameras were invited in there and watched him in the process of worshipping in a, in a church uh, service or a religious service that is not you would call the mainstream or orthodox traditional uh, Christianity in Australia. Paul Pickering, do you, how do you think that's going to play with voters? Is Will it look authentic or will it worry some voters? It, and, uh, I think it's actually quite new, isn't it? I don't, I, I don't ever remember you, John, going to church for the cameras. And I, I don't even – I think it, how, how recent is it that religion has become something to actually display in, in campaigns? Mm. I think uh, – I'm not sure people are going to um, worry about Pentecostal or as opposed to any other thing – if they're concerned about politics remaining secular. Mm. Do um, people know what Pentecostal means? Did you see the photos? Yes, I did. Singing? It doesn't yeah, matter I mean, whether they know what it means. Yeah. What it matters is does it look weird having their prime and, minister with okay. both arms so raised? So let me rephrase it. I've, I've saw the picture on Twitter, but and again, right, my Twitter is very academic, <laughs> <laughs> different than normal people Twitter, let's just say, right? Or normal Australian don't – like, would people see it? Will people like – well, it right. made the news bulletins, and yeah. and, and, and the point is, uh, as Paul Pickering says, I mean, Sorry. religion has not been overtly a part of Australian politics, and when it has a few times, like in the in the in the fifties and sixties, it's sort of been pretty destructive. I think the downside for for um, for Morrison is that um, it paints him pretty much as a social conservative, yeah. and his values on some of the issues on which he's sort of stumbled along, as we saw in the Wentworth by election or, or so on, and. Uh, you know, and the fact that he abstained from the vote on same-sex marriage, even though his electorate voted 55% in favour. These sort of things, I mean, they, they start to feed in. And so if they see somebody who's overtly religious, I think it can be counterproductive in terms of the image that, you know, the electorate is much more progressive than than, than he portrays himself. Yes, that's and true. And in that Less sense, churchy. that can be a downside for him. Yeah. I mean, I noticed Shorten went to church on the same time and trotted out his mother-in-law and, you know, and uh, so they tried to neutralise the fact that they're church-going. But 
Well, Kevin Rudd used to do his sort of Sunday doorstops outside mm. the church yeah. here in Canberra, and right. uh, it was pretty clear that the church was to be in the background of the shot. That was the way they were set up. So mm. he wasn't being perhaps as overtly, you know, we, we weren't seeing him necessarily in the in the Pentecostal, you know, what's derisively referred to as happy clapping church. Uh, <laughs> but we... Um, uh, but we nonetheless, we saw that Kevin Rudd had that sort of moral code, and that was the very kev- you know carefully want to calibrated see that moral message. Code carry through to policy. Yeah, there's and a trade-off. I don't think it's there. There's a trade-off mm, here sure. between authenticity <laughs> and oh, okay, we've seen you in your natural habitat, and we don't quite like it. And then, as John says, like in a very low trust environment, don't come at us with your you know with your Christian morals now. But you know, leave leave children on Nauru, for instance. Yeah. It's tough. Like you, you, you're throwing a lot at voters and uh, um, it's overwhelming, but it's also really jarring. Well, yes, it's an, it's an interesting one. Uh, let's, let's pivot from that to climate change because that's obviously another big issue in this campaign. And, and it's a, it seems to me an appropriate pivot in a way because uh, when we think about Warringah, where Azali Stegel is running against Tony Abbott, she's running very much on that climate change um, uh, platform. Tony Abbott's obviously seen as someone who's been a, a big problem in the in the sort of climate wars. A, you know, probably the single most important player in the decade long climate wars that have locked up politics. But the other the other point to make about it is that Warringah was a a, a, a liberal voting North Shore electorate that nonetheless had a very very high yes approval rating for mm. the same sex marriage change. So it goes to John Houston's point about whether that social conservatism translates across into other policy areas as well. And, and climate change is very much one of those where particularly on the, say, the bottom half of the electorate demographically, you know, age, age-wise, age uh, it is a very big preoccupation. Any thoughts on that, anyone? Well, the electorate is on climate change, but on a, a stack of issues at the moment more progressive than the parliament. And a lot of that is, as you kind of, um, you know, implied markets about age. Um we we have an old white parliament, and that's not news to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is. But but it, the difference, because as we're seeing uh, greater generational cleavages in the electorate, that's becoming a very stark contrast with the parliament, mm. uh, and that's a real problem for how to how do parties um, reconcile this? They have internal processes that lend themselves very heavily towards pre-selecting white you know, men or, or women, but from a very certain class, you know, I make everything about class, but I think it is. Um, and that they've got no incentive to change that, but um, they're, they're not moving. I mean, the, this parliament is is really sluggish. That's true. Before I go to one of the other old white uh, guys on the, on the panel. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't I mean, realise. I, mean, I mean, other than me. Um, uh, Katrine, what do you think in terms of uh, th- that point and the potential, assuming we are witnessing a change election, the potential, I, I suppose, knock-on effect of seeing a new government where half of its uh, parliamentary makeup is, is, is made up of women and where there are a significant, much many more women involved in the executive than has been the case over the last two terms. I mean, I'm guessing, first off, it will be very hard for Shorten not to go with the parity cabinet, right? So we should be seeing something like a very close or what we call a parity zones or 60-40. So there will be more women in the cabinet. And that will be quite interesting in terms of uh, uh, the type of issue that's going to be bringing forward, right? So what we've seen comparatively when other countries have tried this is that either way, 
uh, politics stay the same and the women get kicked out. Like eventually the women is going to leave, which yeah. is a bit what's happening in Canada right now. I'm originally Canadian, so I compare a lot of Australia to Canada. But are you see change in terms of to uh, how politics is made and the types of issue that's been discussed? But it was going to be a feminist government. Yeah, but it's not, right? And that, that's what happened in Canada is that you... Feminist government, parody, and then you went back to politics as usual, mm. and then the women are leaving. And that's kind of a danger that will be kind of interesting to see because it's much easier to, as an opposition, to be like, look at us. We're so great when it comes to mm. gender. We have this quota. We have these great women. And right, and we'll make politics different once you're in government. Is there the tendency of going back to, oh, like Jill was putting it, right? Going back to politics as usual. Going back to your to your basis, basically, mm. or what you think your basis are, is. Um, yeah, this is, uh, the the issue of international comparison is a really interesting one, particularly in relation to the idea of disillusionment for young people or disengagement with politics. Uh, the, the significant exception to that, I think, in a Westminster system is in Britain with the last general election there, where Corbyn was able to run not a political movement, but a but a political, uh, not a political party, but a political movement, mm. and he got lots of younger people engaged in politics who hadn't been for a, a long time. So the Labour Party now has five hundred thousand members in Britain, which is uh, about five times the number of those in the Conservative Party, and way up on the numbers that were uh, in the, in the party. So. It, engaged people in politics in a way that we haven't yet seen in Australia. But he did it to get members to vote for him, right? And and not to disrespect Corbyn, I think he's great, but you've got to incentivise that. The parties in Australia have no incentive to broaden their bases. They don't want members. Members are annoying. But it was issue-based, Jill. The, the, yeah. the, the, the it, Corbyn, it absolutely is. The Corbyn, the Corbyn campaign was based on social justice. Um, it was part of the reason why they've been um, so torn over over Brexit is because they saw the EU as a capitalist club. So there's all sorts right. of social, political and economic in, uh, um, issues underpinning Corbyn's rise. Now, Absolutely. Now, now he's had to play politics. He could easily shoot himself in the foot. But the, I don't think we've seen anything comparable in Australia yet among, uh, among younger, uh, younger people. I think on the issue of climate, uh, it is going to be the defining issue of this campaign in many ways. I mean, there are aspects of uh, the past versus the future, being able to talk about a transition to a low-carbon society Mm. compared to one that just puts up the (laughs) battens down the hatches and said we don't need to make the transition effectively. I mean, that's uh, past uh, those locked in the past, the Liberal Party versus the opposition, which is painting more of a future. Although they're both stumbling on issues like Adani. I mean, if you're serious about a transition, you would not be supporting Adani, another new coal mine, another new coal-fired power station. And the fact that neither of them are prepared to make that stand is surprising. I think particularly after the Queensland election, which turned on that issue. And uh, she won on the basis of that (laughs) issue. Uh, And, um, you know, so I, I don't think that they have a credible response on either side to the challenge of climate. That's frustrating a lot of people, not just young people. There's a lot of political uh, to, scarring. Both yeah. ends. Young people are frustrated. The parents are now starting to realise that the future for their kids is not going to be that bright if they're left to handle this. And that, in that sense, uh, I think it is a defining issue. And um, Morrison's obviously struggling with it. You notice the, 
the Labor Party statements on electric vehicles were pretty moderate statements. We come out with, I'm going to, you know, the Labor Party's going to steal your weekend and take your ute and all <laughs> sorts of nonsense, indefensible my positions. Course, you know, my question just, on that is, that, is that part of because you have some liberals that don't believe in this stuff? Like, what to extent yeah, that these people handful. have power? It's a handful. I mean, they should have outed them years ago and, and well, uh, dealt morning, with them. Well, you know? this morning, the Queensland senator, right? <laughs> you, you this can, morning, yeah. right? They, they, these people are there. They are in the electoral list. But, you know, they, mis, they misjudge these issues. I mean, Queensland state government won by taking a hard line against Adani and, and um, you know, and uh, the so-called deal that the LNP had with One Nation resulted in two or three Labor Party members being elected and the distribution of preferences. I mean, there's a lot of nonsense that's being said about this that really isn't in any way in touch with the reality of the circumstance. And, you know, I think if the government or the opposition were really to go take a hard line, get out in front on the issue of climate, They'd, they'd, you know, do even better. I mean, I'm staggered. In politics, if I had 50% of people saying something was a good idea, you'd listen, right? Mm. Now you've got 70 or 80% of people saying you've got to do something about climate, you've got to make the transition to renewables, mm -hmm. and, and nobody's sort of really listening to the extent in, that... In, instead, we saw Bill Shorten, when he, was, uh, when he was asked about the cost of this last week, he, he, he acted like someone who'd been skewered. Mm. He acted like mm. someone who was mm. really trying to avoid the answer to the question, when in fact... Uh, he needs to, going from what you're saying, John Houston, he needs to um, be much more front-footed about it, get out there and talk about the transformation of the They've allowed themselves the to be trapped in this debate about models. And we know the models can't actually define the future. And They no can't cares, create new industries and new jobs. They just are, are sort of working mm. off some past interpretation of the GDP and its components. Now, I mean, the point that uh, people like Warwick McKibben have really made is that, uh, you know, the impact of the difference between the two parties in terms of their emissions reduction targets is minimal. It's 0.4% mm. of GDP in, 19, in 2030, mm. you know. Mm. It, it's inconsequential. And that doesn't allow for the fact that in the transition, you get a whole lot of new industries and a whole yeah. lot of new jobs. Yeah, a whole lot of new And a whole lot of things we can't and, even foresee at this yeah, that's, stage. that's the point. You cannot... Yeah, uh, so, I mean, and I'm surprised that Shorten allowed himself to get pinned on on models that are totally irrelevant. Doesn't matter whether it's uh, the Fisher model or the, the McKibben model was done four years ago. I mean, it's, they're irrelevant to the debate. They should just take the futuristic uh, view of of, of uh, a principled response, if you like. Uh, painting a, a, a really effective transition through the 2030s to the 2050s and I think everyone will say, thank God, But somebody's the, finally doing it. It's the Queensland mythos, right? Yeah. There's, it, you're right. We, we assume too often that parties and, and leaders make rational decisions and look at Turnbull calling the double dissolution. It was just a bad decision. Or look at Turnbull not putting the, the neg to the parliament. Yeah, you know, sometimes. He's, he's now sort of complaining a lot about that, about, you know, <laughs> as if this was, uh, you know, th there wasn't some sort of, um, you know, insurgency going on, making the point that uh, he faced a very difficult situation. But he had taken that neg through the party room twice, yeah. and it was he who decided in the end not mm. to put it to the parliament. They well, often it, just it, make dumb decisions. What would have happened if, if there were a few people, a handful of people had crossed the floor? I mean, maybe the Labor Party would have voted with the government, would have gone through. 
Mm. You I know, think, like it's just ridiculous yeah. politics. It's, yeah, I mean, to, you, to do, worry you about do have a handful to ask the question on the right of the party. That's right. You do have to ask the question: What's the worst that could have happened? Yeah. And that is, he could have lost his job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, or, or Craig Kelly might across the floor, and Abbott might across the floor. So what? I mean, they're painting yeah. themselves as luddites. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. let them go. Yeah, yep. give them rope. Well, look, thank you very much for this uh, extraordinarily interesting discussion. We could keep talking (laughs) indefinitely, and I hadn't even got to Clive Palmer, which I guess we could do (laughs) next week. Oh, no. uh, Because uh, he seems to be an increasing force, certainly financially, in this election campaign. He's not sponsoring this? (laughs) (laughs) No, not yet. That's that's an interesting point. There there does seem to be a lot of money there. What is it, 28, 31 million so far, and estimates of 50 million in the election campaign. But uh, that's for another time. Thank you very much to my guests here today. Paul Pickering, John Hewson, Katrine Beauregard and Jill Shepard. You've been listening to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. That's me. Um, and if you're interested in and you're in the Canberra area, by all means, get along to our ANU Federal Election Series. We've had one of those events so far, which Katrine and I both spoke at. There's uh, um, another few coming up between now and the election, I think one on April 30 and uh, and two more after that. So they are really, really interesting uh, things to do. Uh, you can also subscribe to this podcast at iTunes um, if you want to uh, get it each week. We certainly hope you do. Um, and as I say, if you're looking to contact us via Twitter, it's uh, the Twitter handle is apps apps policy forum app apps policy forum. The Facebook group is policy forum pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. So thank you very much for being with uh, Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. See you again next time. Mm-hmm.